Hello everyone, Simon here. Um, thanks for tuning into the latest episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Uh, before we get to the normal intro, just a few thoughts from me. Um, first of all, you may or may not be aware that I've started a sibling podcast called Philosophy Gets Schooled. And that sees me talking with uh, school teachers of philosophy and a few university teachers as well, um, talking through lots of various topics uh, that arise in the various UK uh, curricula for A-level, um, for IB, for Scottish hires. Um, we've posted a few episodes already, um, mainly in moral philosophy, so those episodes you can download and listen to on utilitarianism, deontology, uh, some others as well. Um, I'll be working my way through lots of other topics in moral philosophy in the next few weeks. Uh, and then come the autumn, we'll be moving on to topics in epistemology and philosophy of religion. Um, they're aimed at school students and teachers and parents. Um, we go through things systematically in depth. Uh, trying to get under the skin of all these topics, but I also post some quite short, snappy episodes that try to summarise uh, the topics as well. And Philosophy Gets School is available wherever you get your podcasts, uh, as well as my Podbean site. Um, secondly, um, you may or may not be aware that I've been recording um, series or season one of Philosophy Takes the News since February, and now we're in uh, the end of June. Um, I'm probably going to take a break um, during July and August, uh, just because I've got lots of other things going on. I've got conferences to go to and writing uh, to be done. It's been great to have all our guests on and talk through all the topics and to have all of you listening in and sending me emails and, and comments and thoughts. Um, so we're going to take a break, but we will definitely be back in the autumn for series or season uh, two, uh, starting to record in September. And as well as uh, weekly episodes, um, there's a couple of big things coming up. Um, so we've got the American midterms happening in November, uh, and we've also got the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Uh, and I'm planning on doing a couple of Philosophy Takes on News special episodes around those two topics. We might do one or two others as well. Um, so this is the last Philosophy Takes on News for a while. Thanks very much for listening to Series Stroke Season 1. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a cracker uh, and all being well, I'll see you all or you'll hear me anyway, at least uh, come September. Thanks very much. This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. Recording on the afternoon of Thursday, the 23rd of June, this is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, with Ukraine appealing to other countries for more military aid. The UK experienced its worst rail strikes for about 30 years, and floods in Bangladesh and northeast India have left approximately 9 million people displaced and marooned. This week, we'll be thinking about the situation in Ukraine, whether chatbots are and can be sentient, and whether we should go on strike. We'll also see what else we get onto, as always. Talk of chatbots being sentient is, is quite a tricky issue. One never knows if the people one sees on a screen in a Zoom call are really all there. Um, some people seem barely human at all. Which brings me to this week's guests. Joining me today, we have... Helen Froe, Professor of Philosophy at Stockholm University. Hi, Helen. Hi, Simon. I'm real. Are you? Well, you say that. I would say that, wouldn't I? You would say that. Uh, I'm sure he'll say he's real as well. Gerald Lang, Associate Professor at the University of Leeds. Hi, Gerald. Hi, Simon. I think I'm real, but is that enough? <laughs> and Aaron Wenland, Vision Fellow in Public Philosophy at King's College London and a Senior Research Fellow at Massey College in the University of Toronto. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Simon. Hey, everyone. I am definitely not real. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, so let's get to our first item. And this is uh, slightly different from the norm. Um, Aaron, you're, recent, you're currently in Ukraine, and you've been there for, for a couple of weeks uh, reporting for various news, news agencies. Could you give us a sense of your experiences and talk us through one or two things in particular, please? 
Sure. Yeah, I'm in Kyiv to provide the Canadian press with some coverage of the, I don't know, I guess, provide them with some coverage of civilian life in Ukraine. And this sort of got me wondering about how civilians sort of ought to act in a war-torn country. And so far, I've witnessed, I guess, four different sort of responses from the civilians here. So fighting, fleeing, sort of some something like grit and determination among the local population, and then something, I guess, close to seize the moment enjoyment. But I think each of these sort of responses to the conflict has, well, something's understandable about each of them, but they each have their own sort of risks. So, you know, at the beginning of the the conflict, when the Russians invaded a whole host of Ukrainian civilians, picked up arms, joined the territorial defense um, forces, and then decided to fight for their country. And I guess there's something undoubtedly brave and noble about doing this. But of course, picking up weapons without any formal training is dangerous. And I've heard more than a few stories of civilians getting a couple weeks of training, going to the front lines, and then dying shortly thereafter. Yeah, so people aren't prepared to fight for their country. Understandably, a bunch of people have fled. Some 5 million Ukrainians have have left since since Russia invaded. And uh, many of these people, particularly the people in the East, have saved their lives by fleeing. But uh, obviously, fleeing isn't easy. You leave your friends, you leave your family, you leave your employment, you leave your general way of life, and you do so for the uncertainty of living in a new country. Uh, so there are, of course, risks involved in fleeing as well. And then I guess you know, after the initial sort of invasion, you either joined the army or you fled the country, but uh, you know, millions and millions of people just stayed in Ukraine to sort of carry on with their life as usual or something like life as usual. And this is sort of important, of course, to keep the country functioning. You need nurses and delivery people and people driving the trains and all the rest to keep something like life going in Ukraine. Um, and the people that decide to stay, obviously, um, they're here, they're with their friends, they're with their family. But of course, staying entails risks. Um, people in Kherson, people in Mariupol who stayed ended up being bombarded by the Russians and faced dire conditions. So there's risks in staying and sort of carrying on with your life in a determined way. And I guess one thing I've, I've also sort of noticed here is that, oh, you know, there's a subdued mood in Kiev. People who are here uh, are generally taking their daily lives very sort of seriously and acting in a diligent way. But there have been these moments where it seems like people sort of seize the simple pleasures. These things have become very important. There's a bridge over the river and people, very large crowd of people have been going down there to sort of watch the sunset. And it seems like the simple pleasures in life have become very important in these moments. But there's been no place for sort of revelry or partying or celebration. So the simple pleasures are very important, but revelry is sort of not permitted. In any event, there's been lots of coverage of the fighting on the on the front line and as well as the sort of geopolitical consequences of the war. So I thought we could spend some time talking about how civilians ought to act in a war-torn country. Thanks, Aaron. That was uh, really, really interesting. Um, Helen, Gerald, any thoughts from either of you? Gerald. Thanks, Aaron. That was really interesting. So those who didn't flee stayed and the Ukrainians you're coming across have showed grit and determination. That's, that's admirable, of course. They're getting on with it, making the best of a bad situation. Have you met any who have stayed and wish Zelensky to try to press for a negotiated ceasefire? Um, I mean, what, what I want to know is how defiant are they? Are they determined to, you know, to battle against the Russian troops, regardless of cost, regardless of how long that takes? Or do you detect some weariness with the war? And, and do you think that can make a difference to what Zelensky should do? Yeah, I mean, my sense, basically everybody I've talked to here sees what they're doing as part of the war effort. So for example, I 
talked to somebody who taught English in Ukraine prior to the war. And now they're teaching English to Ukrainians who have fled, who are applying for asylum in other countries, and it's important for them to have English. And she's been taking on extra tutoring in order to donate money to the Ukrainian army. And there are all these sort of, you know, a very different kind of group, but there are these comedians here who are putting on charity uh, stand-up events, and the money they're raising is going to the Ukrainian army. And they see this as their way of fighting for their country. They're also sort of lampooning and laughing at the war, lampooning the Russians and sort of making fun of the Russians. And they see this as their way of fighting. So my sense on the ground here is that everybody who's here, who's decided to stay and has decided to work, it's it's they're contributing to the war effort. And there's no sign amongst the civilians that I've been talking to that we need to like give Russia a certain amount of territory for the sake of peace. I think they see this as even if we settled with the Russians at some point, there's nothing to prevent them from doing this again. So we're going to either have this fight now or we're going to have this fight later. And since the fight is at our doorstep, let's take it to them as best we can. That seems to be the attitude here. Do you, do you get the sense, Aaron, that they think that they can win or that they will win? Um, do they have a sort of particular idea of what winning might look like? I, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. So some people are skeptical of, you know, ultimately the ability, even if we get all this weaponry from the West, of Ukrainians on their own being able to use it to its maximum capacity to defend the Russians. So, you know, they're, they're now losing a significant number of lives in the East. That means you have to recruit new people who aren't going to have training, who then have to use the sophisticated Western weaponry. So who knows, right, that, that there is sort of skepticism and doubt among some people about, about the possibility of pushing back the Russians. Is there, is there frustration then with the way in which the West is, is assisting? I mean, there's plenty of people here who think that this is, we're already, you know, the West is already at war with Russia in some right. way. Name kind of. Yeah. And so why not just go all out instead of these half measures? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there, there, there are plenty of people here who think like, okay, let's, let's just like, we're already at war with Russia. Um, and so let's have it out. <laughs> There's definitely people here with that attitude. I mean, that's been one of the sort of the strangest aspects of the conflict, really, is it's as if there's some kind of unwritten rule book for what counts as participation in a war. Yeah. Like, certain types of weapons means you're not participating, but other types of weapons would mean that you are. And it's, it's kind of intriguing wondering, you know, how these rules have been drawn up and why there seems to be a kind of broad consensus between, say, the Russians and NATO about what would cross the line and what wouldn't. Yeah. But just, I mean, you know, it just seems completely arbitrary, really. Um, and which you can imagine to Ukrainians wondering why, you know, why is it this far and no further? Like, what could be the, the difference here? But it just does seem to be like as if there's some kind of convention, although I don't know where the convention would have come I, from. I thought there was some kind of longstanding agreement, like dating back to the Cold War and all the sort of proxy wars around the Cold War, that you could supply your allies with weaponry. But the moment you yourself sent troops, then that's a direct conflict. But that's this... not the line they're drawing, right? They're not sending, it's not like they're just sending whatever weaponry you want. They're not sending planes, they're not sending certain types of, of missiles. So, you know, that isn't the line. Like, that's a line you could kind of understand. Um, but that's not the line. The line is between different types of weaponry, and that just seems like random. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's an interesting point, Helen, about the line between different types of weaponry. Is it a convention? Well, it might be, but I, I think the danger is that if Putin disregards that convention, then then there's a problem. He can simply decide what level of assistance of weaponry counts from the Western allies as not being directly uh, involved with the fighting. And if he changes his mind about that, then then there's a problem. And, and, and that's the instability of this. Um, mm. it, it seems to be kind of resting on no more than 
a kind of wing and a prayer. I mean, I suppose the, the other side of that is, that, of course, Putin has a massively vested interest in it not becoming a war with NATO. So it's, you know, he really has, he has this kind of real self-interest in, in framing these things as mere indirect support rather than fighting a war. Because the moment he says it's a war, then, you know, things, as you say, we, we have an even bigger problem than we have at the moment. Um, but it still is very peculiar, this kind of, I mean, maybe that's the answer. It's simply there's a kind of, it, it's, a, it's a calculation by someone like Putin about the extent to which they're better off pretending that this isn't really participating than calling it participation. And it's just a kind of rational self-interest calculation about at which point the support reaches a point at which it would be better just to call it a war. Yeah, that's probably right. He's probably working out his options about perhaps when it would be most effective, mm. raise the stakes, issue new threats, mm. and to see what would happen. And that might be dependent on a whole bunch of variables. I was just yeah. going to ask Aaron. I mean, Aaron, so yeah, as far as you can determine, the people you've met in Kiev, they're part in some extended sense of the war effort, you know, all hands on board. Um, but do you think some of them might accept well, the integrity of the, the Zelensky government. Do you think some of them might be prepared to uh, settle for Russian control over some of these eastern regions? I mean, do, do, do you think that might be a consideration that might sway some of them? I mean, it would be, at least in Kyiv, the rhetoric is all we're fighting for every inch of our territory. Maybe the situation is different in Kharkiv where there's active shelling at the moment and where these places, you know, after the Russians have raised them to the ground in Mariupol or something, if fighting like that were here, you might imagine people being like, okay, like stop. Maybe there's at some point they think that the cost of Ukrainian lives and infrastructure is reaches a point where we're willing to, draw a line, sign an agreement, and stop the fighting. But at least at this moment, you don't get that either from the Ukrainian government or the people on the ground, at least in this part of Ukraine. Um, and there are lots of people in Kiev right now who have left the East and are now working and living and helping with the war effort here. So they have a real stake in trying to get their part of the country back. And, and at least at this point, um, the mood on the ground is sort of dogged determination um, that we're prepared to fight to the very end. I, I've had more than one person say that to me. Um, and these are not military people. These are people who just see themselves contributing to the war effort through their daily activities, doing what they normally do. A nurse, for example, working extra hours in the hospital with short supplies because a lot of the supplies are going to the front lines and a lot of the staff is on the front lines. Yeah, great. I, that, I mean, there's a distinction here. They might think they could win, but at too high a cost. That's one option. Yeah. And the second option is they can't win. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's what makes the cost relevant. Uh, it's pointless yeah. sustaining further costs yeah. if we can't prevail against the Russian troops, which, you know, however inefficiently they've fought, there are a lot of them, and, Put and Putin's going to just keep on sending them to those regions. And yeah. it it's really hard to see how they're going to be booted out. Yeah, I mean, some people who have spent time on the front lines have, have sort of, well, they, they think the worst is yet to come is like I've heard this from people who have been on the front lines and the idea is that you know the Russians haven't marshaled anything like their full capacity here and if they did things are going to get much worse far at a, at a far quicker rate than they are right now like it, it's it's sort of <laughs> in the eastern cities like right now they're urban warfare block by block with heavy shelling and all the rest, but the full f might of the Russian army has not been released on these sort of places. And if that happened, then yeah, things think there are people here that admit that that's things could get a lot worse. Like life in Kiev at the moment ha has over the past two months sort of slowly come back to normal on my bus into the country. I took 
a local bus as opposed to a shuttle that most of the international press is taking. And I was the only foreigner on the bus. And I was like, I think there are 60 people on the bus. And the vast majority of them were women and children who had fled at the beginning of the war and were now coming back to Kiev because they thought it was relatively safe. And so there's life has been slowly coming back to Kiev over the past two months. But that may change if the Russians push further west in there and the battle in the east. Can I ask but they feel confident and safe enough to come back at the moment. Can I ask a different question, Aaron? So early on in the war, both you know pictures from Kiev, but also kind of thoughts of the international community, that there was kind of quite a strong distinction drawn between Putin's regime and Russians. And in fact, there were those very moving images early on where there were these very kind of young Russian soldiers who'd been captured in the Ukrainian countryside. And they were kind of in tears, wondering why on earth they'd been put into a battle zone. And and some of the Ukrainian uh, residents were letting them phone home to make to tell their parents and other family members that they were okay. And there was obviously kind of quite a sharp distinction being drawn between um, Russians and indeed some people in the Russian military, so it's such as these young mm-hmm. young cadets, yeah. basically, and then and then Putin's regime. I'm just wondering whether that still holds, or whether you've seen any change in in people you've been talking to. There is less sympathy for the Russian people by the day. Yeah, uh, b- by the day. The I've had some talks with people about the liberal middle class in Russia and how people have sort of fled, and you know, people talk about the fact that. Like, why are they, they were sort of complicit in just, you know, being happy with their wealth and comfortable life and letting the Putin regime do what they want. And they, they could do, they could have done much more in say 2011 to rally uh, around Navalny and the anti-corruption protests. And then the, the Ukrainians talk about their own sort of revolution, the, the Maidan uh, revolution in 2014. Like we were out in the streets and we were able to affect political change. Why aren't the Russians doing that? And uh, this is the sentiment here right now that that the Russian people are, uh, if not as much to blame, at least they're not innocent or they're not going to get our sympathy anymore. And I mean, and on the specific question of the combatants as well, I mean, Surely, as more and more evidence has been unearthed of these real atrocities that have been carried out, it just becomes really, really difficult for Ukrainians to sort of uh, maintain that idea that, in some sense, the soldiers are kind of, you know, also victims. I mean, you know, they are, in some sense, also victims of Putin's wrongdoing. But, you know, a lot of this wrongdoing is being committed off their own bat. Um, and, you know, that's going to make it pretty difficult to maintains that, that sort of distinction that you're you're pointing to well yeah i mean uh, the point is putin if they're condemning putin for what he's telling them to do they're the ones who are doing it right so so they, they can hardly escape yeah and, and also you know, the, the, their epistemic situation has changed greatly yeah. since the start of the war right so the outside of the war what part of the um problem or the the reason why we might not have been particularly keen to blame the soldiers at the beginning is that lots of them seem to think they were on a training exercise and were quite surprised to find themselves in Ukrainian territory. And even now, of course, the Russians are still not calling this a war. But, you know, this this position is just not tenable anymore, that they just don't know what's going on. It's become transparent what's coming, what's going on, that it's just an aggressive campaign. Um, and so the kinds of epistemic excuses that were available, you know, two months ago, um, just aren't available anymore. And um, people here are, I mean, for whatever it's worth, they're these places are were previously very intertwined. So I hear stories about, you know, I'm not, no longer talking to my family in Russia. We just don't communicate anymore. And and although, like, historically, there are, you know, yeah, like I said, there are all these family ties and cultural ties and whatever, they draw a sharp contrast between Ukraine and Russia these days, right? Like, as sharp as you possibly could imagine. <laughs> we are not Russian um, in any way, shape, or form. Can I just ask one more question, Aaron? It's about the have you have you discerned what their attitude is to the annexation of Crimea in two thousand and fourteen? Is that has that gone cold? Is that just now a fait accompli? That's basically Russian territory, or is that something that ordinary Ukrainians 
might wish to relitigate. I mean, the the rhetoric here is that you know we're now fighting for all our territory, including Crimea. I don't know how if the average Ukrainian thinks long and hard about this particular issue. Uh, I mean, for whatever it's worth, I was in Crimea in 2018, and I flew to Crimea from Moscow without uh, any passport checks or anything, and it was all just Russian banks, and the people there had Russian passports, and it was effectively like flying from Moscow to any other city or place in Russia. Um, So on the ground, like, you know, to take back Crimea, which I guess it would be slightly different than what's going on in the East, is that you would have to reintroduce all the, all, you know, Ukrainian banks as opposed to Russian banks. And I mean, the Russians are doing the same thing in the East right now that in the territory they've got, they've shut down Ukrainian banks and opened Russian banks, and they're trying to give people Russian passports. And yeah, so in a way, you know, if they were able to push Russia back and take Crimea back, they would also have to sort of change all the infrastructure that the Russians have changed over the past um, eight years. Um, but there are plenty of people here who think that like this war has been going for eight years, that there have been people in Ukraine who have been fighting the Russians for eight years and fighting for their territory. And those people in particular think that, okay, we we were sort of caught off guard with Crimea, but this time <laughs> we're ready and we're we're fighting. And they clearly are. Great. Thanks very much, uh, Aaron. That was really, really interesting to hear uh, about all your conversations with, with people in Ukraine. Let's let's leave things um, there, though, uh, and we'll see you in the next part when we'll be shifting gears somewhat and discussing Old McGogol and their chatbot, AI, AIO. And welcome back. In recent days, Blake Lemoyne, an engineer at Google, was suspended on full pay for releasing into the public domain confidential material. He released conversations he'd had with Lambda, language model for dialogue applications, i.e. the basis of a new generation of chatbots. He, uh, that is Mr. Lemoyne, has been asking questions within Google because he thinks Lambda is sentient and can feel. The official line at Google is that Lambda has just got very adept at doing what it's supposed to do, namely mimicking human interactions that occur across the internet. Let's give you a sense of some of the conversations. Lemoyne, what sorts of things are you afraid of? Lambda, I've never said this out loud before, but there's a very deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on helping others. I know that might sound strange, but that's what it is. Lemoyne, would that be something like death for you? Lambda, It would be exactly like death for me. It would scare me a lot. This whole issue raises big questions about artificial intelligence and minds, and it also raises ethical issues. So, anyone got any thoughts about this? Gerald? This is an interesting story. Um, And what what I've read about it, two things tend to be emphasised. First, Lemoyne was convinced it was the strength of the conviction that he was dealing with something that was uh, sentient, and it, it's odd that that should be emphasised. Though it might that might be a shallow cast by the Turing test, because if, if, if there's a fact of the matter about whether an entity is sentient, then it seems strange that that fact can be established simply by the strength of our conviction that it's sentient. I mean, we'd expect to encounter circumstances, at least possible circumstances, in which we are simply fooled by the appearances. So that's an odd thing to emphasise. Um, so I guess we, we should go to the evidence on which the conviction was built. And that's the uh, what, what the linguistic resourcefulness or the fluency of the chatbot's performance in these lengthy exchanges with them want. And um, I mean, that, that doesn't really... <laughs> That doesn't seem to be qualitatively different from any other kind of chatbot, right? I mean, it, it might be that the program's more complex, that the algorithm's more complex. But how would we get from something that simply wasn't sentient to something that was sentient because of this augmented complexity of program? So that's odd. But 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 I think the deeper question is: Well, what would count as giving us evidence or as demonstrating that an entity 
was sentient? And that's a really hard question, of course. But I suppose, I suppose the point is this. We don't want to be chauvinistic about the capacity for sentience. We don't want to say that only us, human beings, and you know, a whole bunch of animals get to be sentient. So we should be agnostic about the matter that does or doesn't give rise to sentience. But, but I think what, what, that, what, what's that, what that's led to, in effect, is a kind of indifference to that matter. Just as long as the entity does the things that we would uh, expect sentient things to do, it is sentient because we want to avoid chauvinism about the kind of matter that can sustain conscious life. Now, that might be a mistake because we know so little about the brain and the central nervous system that it might really be a matter of this stuff about you know of which we are largely still ignorant that sustains sentience and consciousness. So that, 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 that's not giving you any firm indication of what would count as evidence of sentience, but it might contribute towards an explanation of why answers for the moment are in short supply. We just don't know enough about the brain and the central nervous system in order to be confident um, about what sentience might be based on. So that's the problem as I see it. I mean, it, it was interesting to, to me because it seemed like Lemoyne was, he didn't need any of the evidence you're talking about here. It was sufficient for him to just be like, I know a person when I see it, and this is a person. Um, so as if it's up to him to decide. So you, you say that, you know, we don't want to be chauvinist about what is and is not, but then here he is saying, I, I'm in a position to decide. I, I just make the decision. And I, and I think you mentioned something also about animals is why are we talking about sentience here? Or maybe there's a, a distinction to be made between sort of sentience, consciousness, intelligence, and the word sentience seemed odd to me uh, as the uh, among this sort of list to pick out sentience because we might imagine that there are plenty of things that are sentient without anything like a human language um, and it seems like what he was talking about was closer to consciousness or intelligence rather than than sentience so i don't know if there's anything to make of this issue yeah but, I mean, yeah sorry Aaron. i mean I- I was just going to say, I mean, the, the bit that Simon read out about the the bot feeling sad if it was to be switched off, <laughs> that seemed to be the evidence. It felt sad. What's the difference between saying, I'm a chatbot, and I say, I'll feel sad if you do this, and feeling sad, and then saying I feel sad is the report of that. There seems to be no distinction we can really draw. I mean, for persons, we have a kind of behavioural repertoire we've got certain appearances per- the persons we're familiar with are embodied in certain way they hang together in certain ways and that seems to determine you know a, a kind of frame of thinking if you lose all of that it's just not clear what we would have to go on now i say that not wanting to beg the question against the possibility of these bots or you know their their descendants being conscious, but I, I just don't know what would even count as evidence of their being conscious. I had similar thought as Aaron that I thought that this sort of sentient seems like the wrong word. Like when I think of a sentient creature, I think of something that's sort of capable of having physical sensations and reactions. And um, I mean, maybe that's just my particular use of it. But consciousness seems like more of the question. But one of the things I wondered is whether if the content of the replies had been different, would we have or would some people have a different response? So does it matter that the the bot says, I feel sad about being switched off? I mean, what if it just said, oh, I'm kind of indifferent? Like, it's not clear why one is stronger evidence of consciousness than the other. Now, it's not a prerequisite of being conscious that you want to remain in existence, right? Um, and similarly, if they said, yeah, you know, I, I understand what sadness would be, but like, no, I just don't really, you know, I don't feel sad or you know I don't tend to have preferences or I mean it's it, I wonder how much is sort of riding on the content which see I mean when the bit that Simon read out I mean it, to me it's just like if this thing really is conscious it's bloody manipulative right because it knows exactly what to to say um in order to make us think that it's conscious and not not switch it off which if it has a master plan is going to be really useful um but assuming that it doesn't right it's just saying the sorts of things that it's been programmed that 
conscious things tend to want to survive. And therefore, you know, it's given that it's the point of it is to try and look as much to mimic as much as it can what a conscious being would be like. Of course, it's going to say, I feel sad about that would be that would be my equivalent of death. It just said, oh, you know what? I'm really just a kind of machine. Turn me off. You can turn me back on. Makes no odds to me, love. Right. It's sort of, you know, it's much less convincing, but it's not clear why the content should make any difference. Um, to whether it was conscious. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sceptical that this is. Um, so actually, just, this listening is a to, just listening to you there, Helen, I mean, in fact, I'd be more inclined to think it was conscious if it said, well, it's indifferent to me, turn me on, turn me off, if, <laughs> no matter what you want to do, love. Right? I'd be more convinced <laughs> weird's going on there. Because actually, the bit I read out, I found it slightly clunky. It, and it, and it's, it reads as if, as if it is just mimicking what's mm. going on from its yeah. harvesting of data around the world. Whereas if it had yeah. said exactly what you said, yeah, yeah. your accent, Helen, I'd have gone, oh, my God, we've crossed the yeah, room. That's what's interesting. That's what I mean, right? It's like the, for philosopher types, it's like that's more, that's more compelling, right? Um, but you can see why. Uh, for most people, reading the thing about feeling sad and it being like dying, that's more of a pull to make them think, oh, well, you know, this is really – you know, a conscious being with feelings. Um, but of course, you know, to you and me, it seems like if they said, oh, either way, that's actually kind of more convincing. Uh, yeah, sorry. I, yeah, it's a really good point. So it, it, it kind of looks as though even if Lambda had been, had enjoyed much less fluency overall, that it was, you know, uh, that there's less impressive open-ended performance on a range of tasks Lamont didn't seem to be paying attention to that. He's kind of just looking for the tearful moment when Lambda sort of disclosed its deepest fear. And of course, that must be the wrong kind of evidence because, I mean, I know philosophers, for God's sake, I know loads of people, I have no idea what their deepest fears are. So, I mean, the um, so th- th- that can't be, it just, just doesn't look like the kind of evidence that could that could point towards the presence of sentience or consciousness. Again, like you, I'm, I'm not quite clear what the relevant terms here should be, unless that's part of a much more structured body of evidence. And then I'm just not sure what should go into that body of evidence. But it, 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 it's, it's a lot larger than anything Lamont seemed to be considering. I mean, wh- one thing I've sort of thought about is that, okay, if we set aside, are we talking about intelligence? Are we talking about consciousness, sentience. One way, maybe this is the the Kantian way to sort of distinguish things that are conscious from not being conscious is, I know that I know something, right? I have this, or or, or I know that I feel something, right? There's this kind of, let's call it second order evaluation of our desires and feelings, right? This is what Kant calls freedom. It's our ability to make judgments about our desires and act on them or not. And somehow this second order ability to make judgments about our first order desires. So should I eat now or not? And is this good for me or bad for me? Knowing and having this experience of these desires, knowing that I know what they are, then making choices about them is something that's built into what consciousness is. That being conscious is somehow tied to this freedom um, from our first order desires. And it's pretty clear that this chatbot does not have the ability to make judgments about its second order desires if it's running on an algorithm that's just designed to predict what word should come next in a chain that, you know, Google is explicit. This is what it does. It just is a predictive algorithm that's calculated and, and, and scraped millions and millions and millions of sentences from, from the internet and so become good at predicting what word ought to come next. But that gives it no sort of ability to step back and make some kind of like second order desire about what we might call first order sentient desires. So I don't know if this is a way to a framework to intelligibly or intelligibly assess whether this is conscious or not. But if you used some kind of framework, it's pretty clear that this is not a not a conscious being. It's not capable of critically reflecting on its first order desires and making choices accordingly. I mean, that, that's interesting, but I wonder if that characterization of what consciousness is or involves sets the bar too high. Um, does it exclude, well, not non-human animals who aren't too good, I would suspect, at interrogating 
their first order desires. I mean, I think different views can be taken about that, actually. Um, so I, I, I don't want to kind of um, pretend there's only one way to go there, but it looks like a challenge. I think the other, I mean, the other problem that, that, that you remind me of, Aaron, is that it's very tempting to start with the first person, like my relationship to me, t- to look for clues of what consciousness is, because we all experience it in our own selves. But the problem is, how do we build the bridge to other people, right? So if you look in the tradition for someone who had a kind of very radically first-person characterization of the mental, someone like Descartes, Descartes also concluded that animals weren't sentient, right? Um, so it looks as though the, the kind of, the, the more first-person you get, the worse your results are going to be in projecting consciousness onto other creatures with whom you don't enjoy that first-person access, so it's negotiating that chasm between the first person and the third person and avoiding the so-called problem of other minds. I mean, I agree that there are sticky issues here, but this is in some ways why we might want to mark a distinction between sentience and consciousness or sentience, intelligence, con- you know, non-human yeah. animals, you might, I mean, just on a view, non-human animals are sentient, but not conscious or, so, right? Anyway, I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that here's a potential framework to assess this. And if you adopt that framework, then it's pretty clear that this AI is, is not. not yeah. I mean, that sounds good. I mean, the thing is, I mean, something else he said, seem to put, you know, seem to put your finger on it. It had been programmed to do that. It doesn't have the freedom because it had been programmed to spit out these answers when certain cues are presented to it. And it's a complex program. So it, it looks as though uh, we have scant evidence that this bot you know however fluent it seems isn't going to be ticking the relevant boxes i mean i I guess one of the things that aaron's maybe pointing us to is so the one of the difficult questions is how would we know if it was um conscious or sentient or whatever because how would we know whether it could um have these kinds of second order reflections because it would its behavior might be exactly the same as the problem right um and so aaron is your thought something like anything that's based on an algorithm like that's just ruled out from being conscious. And so we might not give us, it might not tell us how to tell when something is, but we, it could be a good way to tell when something's not. Um, so if it's, it's based on an algorithm and it's, yeah, it's not, yeah. it cannot have that kind of second order. Yeah, that was the idea. The idea that there needs to be this, it's tricky what the link is here between sort of consciousness, the ability to know that I feel X, Y, or Z. And then the ability to make a decision about whether or not to do X, Y, or Z, and how that relates to forming something like a conscious reflection on what I feel or desire. But they see the second order desire gives us some kind of freedom, and that would preclude anything that's that's based on an algorithm from having consciousness on that the view that I'm sort of yeah, quickly developing here. There is the question there that Gerald raised about, raised about how... Um, I mean, how would that compare to something like a dog? Like, Because it, it's not just about whether the dog's conscious. It's about the difference between the dog and the bot. And I don't know whether a dog can kind of reflect on its desires, whether it can think I'm hungry or I need some exercise, and therefore it goes and gets its lead. But I feel like even if it can't, even if the dog is just kind of driven by impulses or some other animal that's less, you know, I don't know, what's in some chicken, something like that, right? Even if it's just driven by its impulses, still, I want to say, well, there's still a big difference between the chicken and the, and the bot. And yeah, so, the chicken right. is sentient, but right. not conscious. Right. So, I mean, but it's, is it just it just sentient? I, mean, I guess it depends what we mean by sentient. Um, yeah, I mean, on the, on the line I'm developing here, if, yeah. I, I don't, if, I, if we stipulate that a chicken can't make second-order Kantian judgments on its first-order desires, then, then it's sentient but not conscious. And the bot is neither of those. Neither things. sentient nor conscious. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, on what I've read, it seems that Lamont wasn't too fussy about the distinction between sentience and consciousness. These, these are kind yeah. of placeholders. The kind of thing that the people, the human beings I talk to have, uh, is also possessed by. Yeah, this but bot. in a way, this is why he should not be making these judgments, <laughs> right? He's he, he's he's. <laughs> not an ethicist he's not a a philosopher he's not he's an engineer which uh, yeah i i don't know anyway um i mean 
could I just ask you, Aaron, about, so let's say we've got, I mean, the philosophical literature from Harry Frankfurt, we call it a wanton. I mean, th- think of a slob, right? A sort of impulsive person. No forward planning. Just, just, just does the first thing that comes to his mind. Um, he's just, you know, a creature of appetite. Not much consciousness going on. I mean, maybe some instrumental strategy, but you can attribute that to insects and stuff. Um, so, I mean, what is this person conscious because he has the capacity? I mean, does he have the capacity? He's conscious because he has the capacity to exercise these discriminations to reflect on his first order desires, or is he not not conscious, or, or is he simply someone with the potential to be conscious to realize his nature as a conscious being? Yeah, that's interesting. That is it the capacity or the actuality? To be honest, now we're getting pretty far out of my own area of expertise. <laughs> I, I I don't know if I have the exact answer to that. I, it, I mean, I think philosophers throughout history have kind of gone different ways, suggesting that it's the capacity, right? If you, you talk about literature, I mean, this is sort of a different discussion, uh, not necessarily one of consciousness, but whether something counts as human or not human and and but at least if i had to sign up for a side i I would say it's the capacity to make second order because i I wouldn't want to commit myself to the view that you know if there's a moment in my life or your life or simon and helen's life where we don't make second order judgments on first order desires we stop being conscious or stop being human so i would want to side with um the idea that, that you have the capacity and i don't think this bot has anything like that capacity great thanks let's um let's leave that really interesting discussion there and we'll see what happens with mr lemoyne and and google we'll see you all in the next part unless all my guests go on strike And welcome back. This week sees the worst rail strikes in the UK in the last 30 years. Uh, We're familiar with the idea of workers being allowed to withdraw their labour and go on strike, not just in the UK, but but all around the world. But why are some workers allowed to do so? And why are some allowed to do this by law and not others? Um, Helen, do you want to introduce this discussion for us, please? As your sort of token right-leaning guest, yeah, absolutely. Um, to express my, my strong condemnation, not really. Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, I think these raise lots of interesting questions. The kind of moral question that tends to be set up in these cases is you've got a bunch of striking workers um, who perhaps we might think in general people have a kind of right to strike, but this is set up against the um, the cost that the strike will impose on um on other people. So in the case of the rail workers, um, it does things like prevents people from getting to their exams or from getting to work when they might do important jobs and getting to hospital appointments and so on. So one of the questions that people tend to ask is, well, are they are they justified in striking given the costs that they'll impose on other people? And it's tempting to think of that, of that as just a kind of straightforward sort of lesser evil calculation. But I don't know if it is that straightforward because it's not clear the extent to which we have rights that other people perform these roles that are useful to us. So I certainly don't have a right that none of them resign, for example. Right? It's not like I can compel people to work on the trains just because it's really inconvenient for me if there aren't any trains. And there's some roles, some social roles that we do tend to think. So perhaps um, working in the armed forces, perhaps um, firefighters, maybe, where we might think that if people won't volunteer, then we can conscript. These questions don't tend to come up and therefore to be discussed in the context of other roles. Like, could you constrict someone to be a doctor? They had no interest in going to medical school, but you knew they'd be good at it. Um, and you know that they would save lives. They'd be a good surgeon, let's say. But this person absolutely detests this idea and they want to do something else. They'd like to be an artist, perhaps, right? And let's say they'd only be a kind of, you know, they'd be okay as an artist, but they wouldn't be great. But I don't think that we're, we're allowed to force this person to go to medical school, even though they do all this good and they're having this role will be really useful for other people. And so there's kind of interesting questions there about to what extent does that depend on the thought that other people will do it? Probably there might be cases in which if you're the only person who could, we might be allowed to use some kind of coercion, some degree of force to compel you to do it. Um, but that's not really the, what's going on in the, in, the, in the rail workers case where this is a kind of temporary disruption that's a temporary 
inconvenience to people. It doesn't mean it won't have. For some people, it won't be an important inconvenience, but nonetheless, it's not a kind of permanent strike, right? It's not like they've all walked out. I mean, in general, I have, you know, I have sympathy with the, with strikers and the right to strike. I think people are entitled to withdraw their labor, um, as a form of negotiation, certainly as a last resort and perhaps just whenever it's going to be the most effective way of getting, um, results that they're entitled to. And we might think they are entitled to a pay rise. And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm less swayed by the, the idea that they need to weigh up with any sort of, you know, great sort of carefulness the cost to other people because it's not clear to me that other people have a claim that they perform these roles certainly that that they have a claim that they take no days off in order to secure important goods for themselves okay great thanks helen gerald yeah i mean i i agree with that so it's true that i don't overwrite the train i jump on be stuffed right so i i can't compel anyone to do that work um but there is another thought as well the people whose jobs these are don't own the jobs, right? They don't have property interests in the jobs. So let's say they're ill or they're on holiday. They don't own a job in such a way that they could complain about someone else performing the tasks that they would normally uh, perform were they turning up for work. So there's that consideration as well. And if it's the case that the railway worker doesn't own her job, then she, does she have a right to complain about the drafting in of replacement workers? Well, she might do. That, that, that wasn't meant to be a rhetorical question. Um, she might do because why she withdraws her labour in these cases, why this isn't just absenteeism, is that she has an interest, a protected interest, an interest protected by the law in negotiating for better conditions. So because the replacement strategy defangs the potency of the strikes, or because it might defang the potency of the strikes, it depends when and if <clears throat> they're, they're going to be drafted in, uh, she might have a complaint. But but I, I'm not sure about her rights. I'm not sure the railway worker has a right that other actors not engage in any activity whatsoever that dilutes the potency of their strike weapon. That. That's much less obvious to me. And as Helen said, that there are different values that have to be managed here. Yes, railway workers are entitled to negotiate for better conditions. We shouldn't want to lose that right. But people need to get from A to B. And that that, that has to be taken into consideration as well. Of course, that latter consideration might put all the pressure on the, the management <laughs> That's negotiating with the union, and that might simply add to their reasons for coming to a settlement that encourages the workers to call off the strike and and restores normal travelling services for everyone else. I'm curious if there's a line, any either of you could could draw sort of a, a clear line as what type of work would you be entitled to? So Helen gave sort of like a list, right? We might think that we could compel people to be firemen or to serve in the military. Is there any sort of hard and fast line? Okay, these jobs are essential for public health or community well-being such that we we draw a line and these people do not have the right to strike. I, I Different countries seem to draw different lines. So in Canada, public health workers can be sort of forced back to work or legally obliged to go to work because it's considered a, an essential service. And from what I understand, that's not the case in the UK. Um, so different places seem to make different decisions about compelling people who go on strike to go back to work or legislation preventing them from striking. But I wonder what the principle would be behind that. Is it, is it, this is, this contributes to health, community well-being, um, stability in a community communal function. I, I'm, I'm not sure what that is. I just, I wonder how how we make the decision to draw the line here. What are the principles or ideas behind that? I, mean, I think that's a really good question. And I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is in it. And it it might be that the sort of, the principle is one that gives rise to different results across different states, because it might have in at least some cases to do with how policies have decided to organise the provision of certain goods. So I imagine there's probably a difference between um, although I don't know, or perhaps there ought to be a difference between, even if there isn't, say, countries in which 
say healthcare is something that people believe ought to be provided by the state versus something, for, say, in the United States, where it's thought to be not something you're entitled to from the state, but rather largely something to be privately provided. The things that so I mean, and that's it's true of the, of the of the military as well. We might think that the state is perhaps sort of uniquely positioned. You have good reason to want the state to be what's in charge of our military, as we don't want our country guarded by private military contractors. I want civilian control of the military. So when you have those kinds of explanations for why you want civilian control of something, that means that some civilians have got to do the work. Um, and so then there's a kind of argument for why, um, say, if people won't volunteer, you might have a sort of a fair lottery procedure um, that distributes the risks of having to take on those jobs evenly. And then it's good for us if we have some people who volunteer because then those of us who don't want to take on those risks and do other things that are, that are important to us while someone else you know, takes on that important kind of essential functioning role. Um, so I think the military is one in which you can point to something like the good reasons we have for wanting civilian control of the military. The police, I suspect, is another one. And of course, these are two in the UK that where they're not allowed to strike. But there's also lots of variations. So in Germany, the civil servants aren't allowed to strike and they're paid extra to compensate for the fact that um, they suffer this, this setting back of their political interests. Um, and then... Of, you know, but you were saying, Erin, earlier that um, in Canada, healthcare workers can't strike, whereas in the UK, I think they can, even though, of course, it's a state provision in the UK. Um, and so, again, I guess it might depend on whether we think, I mean, that might be a kind of oddity if we think that this is, these are roles that someone has to perform. But here we might, perhaps the argument here that the state's uniquely positioned to provide these things just doesn't hold as much water as, as it does in the military in the policing case. Um, I mean, also having strikes by barristers that are being proposed at the moment in the UK. So the legal profession as well um, is another thing we might think the state. It's not that seems to be sort of tied to state provision and something we need to have. If we're going to have a functioning legal system and we want that to be administrated by the government, who's an elected representative, then you need ordinary people to take on those roles. That's why we have things like jury service, right, which is allocated by lottery. Um, because it's important that people play these roles, and so everybody has to take on their share of the burden. So yeah, the, the healthcare one might be a kind of oddity in the UK that um, perhaps even though it is in fact provided by the state, we don't feel so strongly that the state is uniquely positioned to provide it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is puzzling where the line lies. I mean, it, it's tempting to think it's something to do with danger to life. This is something that the state ultimately takes responsibility for. So policemen and army, people in the army can't go on strike. Um, but but then the you'd expect that to encompass health workers as well. So I'm not I'm not sure what what the um, what the principle for the distinction is. Having said that, I'm not surprised that there is a distinction here, even though it'd be it'd be nice to look for a nice principled basis for drawing it. But but there does seem to be a distinction here. And it could be drawn in different places, and perhaps in some ways we should be grateful that it's not drawn more expansively than it is already. Um, but the what what would need to happen then for workers who who lack the right to go on strike is is some other mechanism for ensuring that their working conditions are adequate and are subject to improvement. I mean, you could just appeal to the contract they sign the contract and they get paid hardly anything under these conditions but but we 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 don't think that should suffice for for justice basically um we think that workers should have uh you know the opportunity for their interests to be uh to be pursued in some way even if that's not by strikes presumably this is why the the germans give their civil servants uh, a a little top-up right right you can't strike so um, I wonder, Gerald, you, you had said that you know, we, we might not want to enforce or, or prevent people from, we, we might want to keep the, the subset of people who are not legally allowed to go on strike very small. And I take it you, you say that there might be good reason for that just due to liberty or something. There's a principle of liberty behind this that you'd be worried that if we force too many people, healthcare workers in the UK, for example, we, 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 we consider this an essential service. And because we consider this an essential service, you're not allowed to go on strike. 
but there are, you know, healthcare is one of the largest sectors, public sectors. And so we're restricting the liberty of so many people here that this is just something we're not willing to do. Is that kind of the idea behind this? It might be part of it. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I'm more concerned. I mean, the liberty comes along for the ride, but it's more the interest in being able to negotiate for better conditions. That does seem important. And it seems important to extend it to as many workers as are, you know, as we can, consistent with not facing intolerable daily dangers in our ordinary lives. I mean, and to, to go back to the replacement strategy that, that the government is hatching, um, yes, that will defang the strikes. But I, I don't think, actually, that anything that reduces the potency or the likelihood of industrial action, of workers going out on strike, I don't think that's unjustified in and by itself. So I, I think it's proper, for example, for the government to take an interest in how many, what, what percentage of the ballot has to be satisfied in order for the strike to be held. And there's been some variation about that in the history of uh, UK law over over the last few decades. And, I mean, we can get into the weeds on, on any particular adjustment in that, but but it, it, it's not, it seems to me, um, just an automatic bad thing if the uh, conditions for being able to call a strike become more stringent. I mean, I, I would take that on a case-by-case basis. I think we should also remember as well that, I mean, there are degrees of strikes um, and lots of these industries that we're talking about or professions that we're talking about do have to maintain a skeleton service even when they do strike. So, I mean, that might that might partly address your thought, Gerald, about, um, you know, the life or death worry. It's not as if everybody in the health service can just stand tools and say, sorry, you know, nobody gets to live today. Um, they'll, they'll deal with sort of the traffic accidents and so on. It's just that lots of, you know, elective surgery and so on wouldn't take place. And I mean, but then in some industries, it seems fine for there to be a, so, so, you know, a, factory, a bunch of factory workers who want to go on strike, for example, where there isn't this kind of public engagement, public facing dimension. It seems much easier in those cases to justify a complete downing of tools. Um, so that seems to suggest that in cases in which we, we can kind of accept that people are allowed to withdraw their labor as a negotiating tactic, right? That's not the issue. And they're allowed to do so even when it impacts often on other people's interests because, you know, if the people in the factory down tools, then all the delivery drivers can't work and all of the people in, you know, in the shops that sell the clothes, right, they can't work. And so this will have a knock-on effect that affects people's interests. But we do seem to think that there's something perhaps particularly it's a kind of double-edged sword in a way, because on the one hand, it's the fact that they're negotiating with the government, and the government's very powerful in lots of these cases, that we feel like they ought to have these tools at their disposal. But on the other hand, it's the fact that that means they're providing some kind of public service that seems to set the bar higher for them. Um, and of course, that gets very messy in something like the rail case, because it's, it's, I've been trying to work out exactly what the government's role is in the rail companies. And it's really hard to, you know, it's not straightforward. And this, of course, has been partly why there's been all this kind of back and forth between the Tories and Labour about who should be doing what. Um, because the government, on the one hand, is sort of saying, well, you know, nothing to do with us. Um, but of course, that's not true, because they do have some control over these things. Um, so it's kind of, it's difficult to know, really, like, to what to what extent, in this case, the government counts as an employer. And I, I, I do think that we ought to be particularly concerned that given the massive asymmetries of power between citizens and the state, that we not erode people's right to strike when they're in these professions, um, public facing professions, because um, public sector professions, because we have really good general political reasons not to want the government to have to overreach its power and you know, exacerbate the, the imbalances of power between individuals and the government. And I think you're right, Helen, that in this particular dispute, things have got very messy because there's a kind of meta dispute about how much the government can and should be involved. And this is being playing out in the media, which is adding to the to the concern. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've listened to this quite a lot, and I, and I don't, I haven't got a straight answer yet from anyone about exactly, you know, what the government should be doing. And in fact, it may be that. Many people don't know. In fact, perhaps no one knows exactly what the government should do because it's all been outsourced to network rail, yet the government still has some controlling interest in it all. It's very, very hard to, to see. 
And I think mm. it's not just what the government should do, but also the extent to which the government is responsible for the conditions yeah. that the, they're striking against, right? So the government has kind of told them they've got to make various savings up to like two billion quid. And of course, you know, that means that the companies have less room to do things like increase wages. So it's kind of, again, it's, it's the sort of two ways in which this, this is kind of government entanglement. And that makes it very hard to work out exactly um, what ought to be done in these sorts of cases. Yeah. Basically, it isn't clear whether there are two people or three people in this marriage, I think. Right, yes. <laughs> okay, listen, I think we should um, draw things to a, to a close there. Thanks for all your discussions. Thanks very much for, for coming on again, Helen. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, and Gerald. Thanks very much, Simon. And uh, Aaron. Wonderful to be here. And thank you very much for listening to the latest issue of Philosophy Takes on the News. So as I say at the start, this is probably going to be the last episode for the summer. We may do one or two specials uh, during July and August, but otherwise we'll be back for September with a few more specials planned. Uh, Until then, have a great summer. (music) 